Lesson one, basic hip. I'm very happy to welcome Richard Shannon to this bonus episode of the Jazz Session. Richard, great to have you. Thank you, Jason. It's very nice to be here. Before we dive into your uh, album selection, will you just tell folks a little bit about your connection to this music? Oh, gosh, my connection to the music. Well, I'm a lifelong journalist, and I've you know, written about all kinds of stuff. I've covered courts. I've written about environment, religion, all kinds of stuff. But music is kind of actually my religion. So um, I've been writing about music and in particular, particularly jazz on and off since, geez, like the late 70s, I guess. And about 15 or 20 years ago, it became a full-time gig at my old newspaper, the San Jose Mercury News, where I, I was the classical music and jazz writer critic. That already and, sounds uh, like an ancient classification. I mean, it's that's not that long ago, yeah. but the idea of a newspaper having a classical music and jazz critic, I mean, there's got to be, what, like three of those people yeah. left in the United States? So. Right. There were, there were about 10 when I was doing it. I think yeah. there were less now. But, um, yeah, now I, I'm a, um, a writer for SF Jazz, which is uh, an organization in San Francisco, and they're pretty uh, imaginative you know they have their own online magazine as as arts coverage is faded they've sort of hired a couple of people to to write journalistically for their website about various artists and musical trends and stuff so i do that and i mean my biggest connection to the music is that um i just love it so much you know i just clicked with it when i was 15 you know 15 years old i would say which is a long time ago that's like 50 years ago and uh you know, my kids are musicians. My son, Jesse, is a saxophonist in New York. And, uh, you know, my kids kind of got into music because of my saxophone was always lying around the house, not being played. And they were curious. And um, so I'm, I'm a writer by profession and a, a uh, just a lifelong jazz kind of worshiper, you know? I don't know what other word to use. So now I'm even more curious to find out. Often I know beforehand uh, which album someone has chosen, but we didn't discuss it. So I'm going to find out with the listeners right now which album you have chosen to talk about. So let us know what it is. Okay, well, I've picked Sahara by McCoy Tyner. When I was first getting into jazz, or you know, 69, 70, 71, uh, McCoy was sort of like God in New York. 
you know, it's funny, like being into the music for so long, you just see these cycles in taste, you know? I've even read things, essays by people saying that McCoy Tyner is sort of underrated. The whole concept just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mine too. I mean, when, you know, when I was living in New York, I mean, McCoy was it. Musicians worshipped him. The people who came to see him were just so in awe of everything that he did. I mean, his sound, so much power and strength and lyricism and levitational inducement. I don't know what to call it, but, you know, I, the first time I saw him around 71, I just got the chills. And this album, Sahara, was the first record he made for Milestone Records. You know, he had this whole string of amazing albums, you know, uh, Song for My Lady and Enlightenment and Fly with the Wind, Trident, which was a trio album with Ron Carter and Elvin Jones. And um, I know a lot of people say that McCoy's, you know, they go for his late 60s blue notes, which I love to death as well. But maybe just because I was a young kid getting into the music, you know, living outside New York, driving with my friends into the city, going to the Vanguard. You know, the first time I saw McCoy was at the Coltrane Memorial concert at Town Hall in 71. There was this concert with Elvin Jones played, McCoy played with his band, Alice Coltrane played, Archie Shett played, you know. And uh, then I started going to the Vanguard and seeing McCoy. And really, it just kind of changed my life. I was just, it just sort of tapped me into this whole emotional reservoir I didn't even know was there. Um, and Sahara was his first album from that period. Some people find it frenetic. I just find it awesome. I mean, McCoy's like an ocean, you know, he's just, he's, he's not just art, you know, he's got, he's like this world of music and sound. And how do you get to that? How do you be that? But I just loved it so much. And to me, this record kind of was a working band, you know, McCoy, Sonny Fortune's incredible alto player. He played principally with pretty much exclusively with McCoy. He was from Philadelphia, like McCoy. And then Calvin Hill was the bassist, and Alphonse Muzan, this absolute terror on drums. It was uh, it was wild. It was a wild experience seeing him, and I used to see him a lot during that period. And this this record just kind of feels like that time, and it feels just as good now as it did then, you know. Um, oh, and I should mention that when I was in college I, in New York at Columbia, I did radio shows at WKCR, you know, which is still this amazing radio station. And I met a lot of musicians up there. And the first tune I ever played on my first show in 72 or 73 was Ebony Queen from this, this album. So for all those reasons, uh, I picked this, you know, I love a lot of albums, but this one's real special to me. And this to me is just uh, the beginning of a, in a, well, the continuation, I guess, depending on how you want to think of it. But this milestone era for me of McCoy is my my favorite McCoy era oh, wow. outside of Coltrane. And uh-huh. uh, this is about, I think this is two or three albums before Songs of the New World, um, which uh, came out of Milestone. I think maybe there's, I don't know, a few in between. I can't exactly remember how many, but that's which is my all-time favorite McCoy album and and composition. Mm. And uh, yeah, this period, I didn't know 
anything about this period until one day, like uh, just going through the stacks at a radio station I was working at and running across. Well, I think I ran across uh, Songs of the New World, which is how I was exposed to his milestone recordings. I really to me, McCoy was like kind of an enigma and I can kind of understand the underrated thing. Because I, of course, I knew about him from Coltrane's band, but sometimes I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like sometimes when you're when you're that close to something so amazing, uh, that is so seminal in the history of this music, I think it. You know, it's like, you know, once you've played Luke Skywalker, we could make an argument about Mark Hamill's acting not being at the level of McCoy Tyner's piano playing. But anyway, once you've once you've done that, you know, how do you go on to do anything else? And McCoy did go on to do a lot of other things, but I can understand people who maybe don't know too much about him outside of the, you know, of the Coltrane orbit you because can, that's so can. massive. I, I can, uh, because oh, I myself didn't know anything about him until I just stumbled across these records, you know, outside of uh, that world. Uh, interesting. Just, it's just like I grew up during that period when he was kind of it. And uh, sure, everybody knew he played with Coltrane, but he was this uh, just this remarkable, universally admired force on the scene. You know, I mean, Herbie Hancock had left town. Wayne Shorter had left town. They were living in California. In New York, McCoy Tyner's sound was the sound. Him, Pharaoh, you know. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff going on, but um, yeah, and all the piano players sounded like him, you know, so I guess that maybe ran its course a bit and everybody started investigating other players and, you know, Herbie or whoever. But uh, for me, McCoy was the sound that mattered the most. And this album is cool because, um, refresh my memory on this, but doesn't everybody on this record play winds at some point too, I think? Isn't there, like, even McCoy, I think, plays, like, flute or something. Yeah, McCoy and... plays some sort of wooden flute, I think, on, yeah. on a portion of it. And he during this period, he was sort of exploring with a little different sounds and atmospherics. He was, if you went to see him live, he would have a koto, you know, Japanese <laughs> string instrument sitting on his lap and he'd, you know, be playing with that and Al Muzan would pick up an African trumpet. Uh, I don't remember Calvin Hill, the bass player, what he would do. You know, there was some extra percussion. Yeah, there was a lot of different sounds going on. And for people who haven't, uh, I'll I'll put um, a sample from this record, but it certainly won't do the record justice as a whole uh, thing. But for people who haven't heard this album, can you just... I don't, you don't necessarily have to describe the sound of the music, but maybe the the impact on you of this album or the, you know, kind of where it fits inside the history of, of this music. It seems like a very fertile period that, to, at least to me, I just don't know as much about as I should. Well, the early 70s, you know, sometimes get written off as a kind of a downside in the music. In fact, it was this spillover from the 60s, you know, it was almost like more 60s than the 60s. And uh, it was just, there was a lot of emotional force and feeling of possibility and up, up, up feeling in the music. You know what I mean? Um, so this music, how would I describe it? Man, it, it's, it's like a tidal wave. It's also very um, highly melodic. You know, McCoy always wrote great 
tunes, great bass lines. Um, and then, like I said, these four guys had just worked together so much, you know, and they were working all the time, at least it seemed like it to me. And um, there was just a, a unified power and impulse or something going on. You know, I, I interviewed McCoy uh, when he turned 65, which was 15, 16 years ago. I had this really wonderful conversation with him. And after talking to him, I talked to a bunch of other people about him, like uh, like Sonny Fortune, the great saxophonist who's in this band on Sahara, and Bobby Hutcherson. And I would, before I got on the phone with you, I just went digging back through old files and notes, and I actually found some of the stuff that these guys said. Is there time for me to read a couple of paragraphs of what Sonny Fortune and Bobby Hutcherson Absolutely. said about their friend McCoy Tyner? Of course. Okay. So um, this was Sonny I talked to. You know, he played tenor for years and years with Elvin Jones. He played a lot of alto with Miles during the electric period in the early 70s. Uh, Miles hired him out of uh, off McCoy's band. In fact, I was in the Vanguard one night. This is crazy. I can't remember if it was McCoy playing with Sonny Fortune. or No, I think it was McCoy playing with Sonny Fortune because Sonny's own band started playing the Vanguard a few years later than that. Miles came into the club. This was around 74. And you know how people say Miles put out this kind of force field? Everybody's riveted on this incredible music on the stage. Miles Davis comes down the steps at the Vanguard. Everybody just turns around, like, <laughs> at once. And Miles is standing in the back. He'd come down to check out Sonny Fortune, and he asked him, Sonny later told me, he asked him that night, I think, or shortly after, to join his band. But, uh, yes, yeah, so anyway, Sonny was from Philadelphia, as was McCoy. And... Uh, Sonny said, I absolutely walked down the same streets McCoy walked down, and I'm here to tell you, I have no idea where that shit comes from. So why isn't it magic? Other people may call it something else, but I choose to call it magic. We can't study it. He puts the something in music. There's no book, no page that I know of where you can go and get it. You can't bottle it, so what else can it be? By and large, we're all working out of a chromatic scale. We're all working with certain rhythms. So what is it that makes this person so exceptional? And then he mentioned how he had hooked up with McCoy initially in early 71. It was after six weeks when I'd been recovering from a hernia. I played my first gig with McCoy and I called my doctor the next day because I, because I thought I'd ruptured my hernia. <laughs> then, uh, uh, then I talked to uh, Bobby, you know, who was very close friends with, with McCoy Tyner. Bobby lived out on the West coast and, uh, he said about McCoy's music, it's gorgeous, beautiful, and dangerous because anything can happen. It's on the edge of going both ways. You're tumbling around inside his protective sphere. You're inside the ball and you're just being tossed around. Being inside the sphere, it's like being in love. You're inside the sphere and it protects you. McCoy lets you know, McCoy lets you turn that doorknob and go into that wonderful place. The music lifts up and it goes to the next floor. He's pushed the button and the elevator's gone up to another floor again. After you've been around him and you've heard his music, you say, gee, my pockets are kind of full here. 
Wow. So these are just sort of other master musicians who are a little bit in awe of this guy and what is the something in his music, you know? How do you, can't codify it, can't teach it in conservatory. It's just something else. Before we draw to a close, uh, we started this conversation talking about the idea of someone being underrated, and I just want to apply that uh, same uh, adjective to Sonny Fortune, who I think probably in this day and age maybe doesn't get as much love as he should. And I remember uh, when I was 17, I uh, lived in Japan for the first time, and I had grown up uh, mostly on, on big band music and uh, the stuff that my grandparents listened to. And then I got into prog rock. And so by the time I was in Japan, that was pretty much my musical grounding. And I didn't know a ton about uh, small group jazz. And I was watching NHK one night, which is the uh, Japanese like public broadcaster. And they had uh, uh, the Elvin Jones jazz machine on who were playing mm-hmm. in Tokyo. And uh, Sunny Fortune was in the band at that time. And I'd never heard of Sonny Fortune. I had heard of Elvin Jones, but I'd never heard of Sonny Fortune. And uh, I was just absolutely like riveted to my chair in my host family's house, watching this guy play. This was in, I guess, 1991. And uh, that was my first exposure to him. And I just, he just seemed like such a powerhouse. Like I had never really, I had seen very few saxophone players play live who were not, in the big band world. And I had even seen very few of those play. So to see a guy who played like Sonny fortune into, even though it was on TV to kind of, you know, hear that, but pouring out of the speakers and just see him do what he was doing was, was pretty amazing to me and definitely colored my thoughts about what was possible, you know, on that instrument and what was possible in terms of a, of a live performance. And then of course, you know, Elvin playing the drums. I mean, the whole thing was just like a, a tidal wave of energy, you know, even on a 1990s television set in Northern Japan. It was, it was pretty wild to see. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Sonny Fortune was a spectacular player. Um, I always loved him most on alto, which is where he played tenor with Elvin. Um, He pretty much only played alto with McCoy and uh, man, the, the empathy between those guys there was one night at the Vanguard. I remember being there for like a late set. The Vanguard used to have these late sets that finished like one, two in the morning. And the music just went way out. It was just, you know, 
spine tingling. And um, when it was over, he, Sonny and uh, McCoy just looked at each other and started laughing. Like, what was that? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Sonny Fortune was a great player, kind of, kind of uh, out of Coltrane and with a great love of Cannonball Adelaide. You'd hear that, a lot of that, particularly in, in his alto playing. And his music, his, his, his playing wasn't that, I don't feel that well captured on record too many times. You can really hear him on Sahara, though. Sahara has some of his best recorded solos. There's a tune called Rebirth toward the end of it. It's really just a scorching solo by, by Sonny Fortune. Really wonderful player. Just died a year or two ago. My guest for this special bonus episode has been Richard Shannon. He is a lifelong journalist, writer for SF Jazz. Richard, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm really glad you took the time to do it. And thank you so much for sharing not only your own insights, but some of your uh, interview notes from days gone by. That was really special. <laughs> Thanks for that, Jason. It was fun. I love talking about this stuff.